I'm Felix Hammond and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Friday, November the 12th, and we are focused on torts. Don't stop listening. This is good. Johnson & Johnson is facing two multi-billion dollar threats from court cases. Take them one at a time. First one comes from tens of thousands of women who use J&J baby powder and say they got cancer because there was asbestos in the talc. Now, J&J denies there was any asbestos in the talc, but that hasn't stopped juries from finding against the company sometimes multi-billion dollar cases that, and it's using something called a Texas two-step to try and deal with it. We're going to talk about that later. Hold that in your mind. But also, J&J manufactured opioids. And so it's got all of these lawsuits from cities and states trying to recoup the costs they incurred as the opioid epidemic swept across America. Now, in both of these cases, what J&J wants to do is just negotiate a big deal. It wants to be able to write two big checks. In order to be able to do that, it's going to have to find judges who will grant it a stay from any future lawsuits. That's something that Elizabeth Warren, for one, wants to make illegal. After the break, I'm going to talk to David Warfield. He's a bankruptcy lawyer at Thomson Coburn. He's going to explain what's at stake here, both for J&J and for the entire bankruptcy bar. David, thank you so much for being here with us. Let's talk about Johnson & Johnson, which is in the middle of two different massive tort fights, I guess you would call it. One of them is about opioids. Johnson Johnson had their own opioid. It was called Juragesic. Bring us up to speed on like how they're trying to deal with this threat of having to pay out billions of dollars for malfeasance in the world of opioids. In the opioid cases, most of those lawsuits have been brought actually by state governments or local governments claiming that the defendants engaged in a public nuisance and therefore the recovery should go to the governmental units. And the governmental units have promised in those cases, if there's a recovery, to utilize the funds for opioid education and uh, other mitigation techniques. What J&J has done is engage the states and the other governmental units in, in settlement discussions. And last summer, reached a tentative settlement with some of the states for the payment of many billions of dollars three other distributors also reached similar settlements at that time. So just to be clear, when we see a $26 billion headline, not all of that $26 billion would come from J&J. That is correct. There were at least three other companies in that massive settlement, which has not been finalized yet. And if this settlement goes ahead, does that basically mean J&J writes some enormous check to a whole bunch of states and then it's put this behind it? Or would there still be a lot of other ways that it could wind up being forced to pay for this? That's the million-dollar question, I guess, or billion-dollar question in this case. It would result in a complete settlement with everybody who agreed with the settlement on the other side. And if J&J takes the position that all states must agree or it will not enter into any kind of settlement, then we'll see if they can get all 50 states to agree. And even then, you ha I believe you have some city governments in that litigation as well. So it's kind of to be determined whether it will buy complete peace 
with all the governmental units or whether J&J will accept something less than complete peace in exchange for resolving the vast majority of those kinds of claims. And then finally, I assume there are also claims asserted against J&J and the other defendants by individual claimants or their families if the claimant is deceased. And I don't believe that those claims would be resolved in this settlement. Now, there's a whole other bucket here, which is baby powder. The allegation is that use of baby powder and the talcum in the powder causes uh, cancer. And there have been a number of individual claims that have gone to trial and resulted in large judgments against Johnson & Johnson. Now, some of the cases have been resolved in favor of Johnson & Johnson, too. But it's important to remember that these cases are being brought in the talcum powder scenario by the individual claimants themselves and not by the states under a public nuisance theory. So right now, there are at least 38,000 individuals or groups of claimants suing J&J on the baby powder liability theory. Just one group of 22 of those claimants managed to get a $2 billion claim. So if you have 38,000 of them, literally there's no limit to how big these claims could add up to. It's going to add up pretty quickly, yeah. Instead of trying to negotiate a global settlement, which they don't even have a group of states to negotiate with because these suits are not being brought by states, they're being brought by individuals, J&J instead decided to do this thing called the Texas Two-Step. Can you explain the Texas Two-Step in 90 seconds or less? I'll try. So Texas has a fairly unique provision in its corporation law. Everybody understands that a merger is typically two corporations coming together and combining themselves with one surviving corporation. But Texas law, almost unique among the states, provides that a merger can also do the reverse. And that is a single corporation can cleave itself into two or more new corporations and allocate the assets and liabilities of the old corporation in any way it sees fit. So what Johnson & Johnson did in brief was to create a new Texas limited liability company by merging the old company that had the talc liabilities into it. And then on the same day that it merged into the Texas LLC, it caused the Texas LLC to do what is called a divisive or divisive merger in which a new company then divided itself into two other new companies and J&J put all of the talc liabilities into one of those new codes, and it left all the other liabilities and most of the other assets in the other new co. So in that way, it attempted to isolate the talcum liabilities in this new company. Which then promptly filed for bankruptcy in North Carolina. That's the second step of the Texas two-step, yes. So on October 12th, J&J implemented this strategy to change from a New Jersey corporation that had all of the assets and all of the liabilities and then divide itself into these two new companies. It took about four hours to do that. They started at 9 a.m. By 1 p.m. or so, they were finished. And then two days later, they filed the case in North Carolina for the company that has the talc liabilities. They chose North Carolina, I suspect, I don't believe they've ever said this publicly, 
but I think they chose it because the law in that part of the country is a little bit more favorable to debtors who try to do these sorts of things. The big multi-billion dollar question is what happens to the existing liabilities? Because there's no point in doing this whole Texas two-step if the big old J&J that's still listed on the stock market and is worth a gazillion dollars still is liable for that for those claims. That's right. They have admitted in court that the whole purpose of the Texas two-step was to isolate the liabilities in this new company that was formed and do their best to keep the rest of J&J free of those liabilities. And then the idea would be that if this goes according to what J&J plans, basically they get one big bankruptcy negotiation where they have to try and persuade the 38,000 people who are claiming got cancer from baby powder to agree to some big settlement. They'll throw in all of the assets that they need to make that settlement happen, and then it all just goes away, and that's the end of it. Right. That's exactly what I think they're looking to do. Chapter 11 has been used to settle many, many, many of these types of mass tort claims, asbestos cases, the Boy Scouts of America, USA Gymnastics, the religious organizations have all used Chapter 11 to try to settle these uh, thousands of abuse claims filed against those entities. So J&J is going to try to take advantage of the advantages that bankruptcy has in solving problems when you have a massive number of claims like this. The additional step, though, that J&J took is to try to isolate it and make it much more difficult for the claimants to get at those assets of the old J&J that didn't file bankruptcy. At the end of the day, though, if this strategy is going to work, I think everyone could see that old J&J is going to have to kick in some money to fund the plan that pays the creditors something on account of those talc liabilities, much as the Sackler family, which didn't file bankruptcy, had to make a substantial contribution to the Purdue settlement plan. If you had to guess, which one do you think is going to wind up being more expensive to J&J, the, the baby powder or the opioids? I would guess, frankly, that it would be the opioids more than the baby powder, but we'll see. And look, one thing that's overarching all of this discussion is there is legislation pending in Congress that would uh, restrict the ability of bankruptcy judges to give what are called third-party releases or non-debtor releases to entities that fund plans like this. So even if the Texas two-step works, it's possible that Congress could pull the rug out from under J&J with a new statute. David Warfield, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been uh, my pleasure. So after we recorded that interview with David, the news broke that Johnson & Johnson was going to split into two pieces and that the consumer arm of Johnson & Johnson is going to become a separate company. It is very unclear whether this is going to help protect the rest of Johnson & Johnson from lawsuits. They say that this news has nothing to do with the TALP lawsuits. I'm not sure I believe them. But anyway, that is the big news of today and the big context in which you should understand it. Welcome back. What I'm watching today is Beeple, 
You might remember Beeple. He's the artist who creates an NFT called Every Days, the first 5,000 days. That sold at Christie's in March for $69 million, and that precipitated this huge NFT craze in the art market. A bunch of artists all started making and selling NFTs. It's free money. Awesome. What's not to love? But while the artists were creating NFTs, Beeple went the other way, and he made an actual physical sculpture called Human One. It's seven and a quarter feet tall, it's four feet square, inside it are screens with his animated images. Human One sold at Christie's, again, this week for $28.9 million, which places people among the most expensive sculptors of all time. Now, there's this guy called Noah Davis at Christie's. He kind of coordinated both the original sale and the human one sale. And he came out and he said, quote, I look at my life as pre-beeple and post-beeple, the same way the world thinks about before Jesus Christ and after, beeple is kind of my Jesus. Why does this matter? Because it just shows how completely insane the art market is right now. Beeple is not Jesus. And although there is a lot of money here, let's get things in perspective. All right? Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Felix Salmon, and I'll be back on Monday with another Axios Recap.